0: I'm Margaret Mueller, President and CEO of the Executives Club of Chicago, Chicago region's top business forum. Join me on the Executives Exchange as we go deep with some of the most successful executives from the Chicago region and unlock the keys to their success. Trust me, you're going to want to hear this. On today's episode of the Executives Exchange, we meet Christine Shivink, CEO of Sure Incorporated. She's been lucky enough to have her two passions, engineering and music, collide into an executive career that has provided professional growth and personal satisfaction. Stay with us to hear her insights about women in STEM, her light bulb moment, and career advice applicable to all aspiring executives. Hi, Chris. It's so good to see you.
1: Hello, Margaret. How are you?
0: I'm good. I'm really excited to be here with Chris Shivink. Chris and I met, I don't know, maybe two years ago, I think at some sort of business dinner or something. And I was just mm-hmm. so intrigued by you and I was fascinated by you and wanted to get to know you more. And we did. And then I asked you to serve on our board, which you graciously, graciously said yes. And I'm just really excited to have you be our inaugural podcast interviewee for this first podcast that we're doing.
1: Well, I'm really happy to be here and share a little bit of my story, I guess.
0: I know. We have a lot to talk about. So, you know, you grew up at sure. You've worked there. It was your first job out of college at the age of 22. So tell everyone a little bit about that.
1: You know, it's interesting. I will be coming up on my 32 anniversary this year in June. So, yeah, I started right after graduating from school. Um, I actually am kind of embarrassed to say that even though I played you know music all throughout high school, I wasn't terribly familiar with the brand. It just so happened that they came on campus to recruit. And I came down to Chicago to go through the interview process and something really just clicked. And I ended up accepting the offer to come in that June of 1989. And I will say that in the almost 32 years since I've been with the company, there's just been a lot of transformations. It's it's not exactly the same company as it was 32 years ago.
0: Yeah. Um, so people may have caught that or not, that you are both a musician and an engineer by training. You played music for a long time, but said you weren't really familiar with the brand. So tell us, what did you play? Do you still play?
1: I played both French horn and piano. And when I was getting done with high school, I was at a crossroads, you know, should I pursue music because I actually thought about going into music performance or should I go down a completely different technical path of engineering? And ultimately, of course, I decided on the engineering path, but joining sure was interesting because so many of our associates have that dual sort of capacity to figure out technical problems and also they happen to be very good musicians so it's a common passion that runs throughout the company and of course we serve the music industry so it's fun to have you know people involved with making the products who can beta test them and you know work out all the wrinkles and eventually use our products as well so you know our our associates are actually customers as well.
0: Well, that's one of the things that I think makes you so fascinating as a CEO. So one of the questions that we typically would ask people is what was their first paying job and what was one of the lessons that they learned from it? Because some CEOs have really built their careers by making a series of strategic moves. You really dug in and rose to the ranks, and then you have this incredible background of music you know, and engineering. So I would think Of all the CEOs we talked to, you probably know the totality of your business better than most. And so how has that served you?
1: It's served me very well because, like I said, the company has gone through a lot of transformations. When I started, it was mostly a North American footprint that the company had. And now we have locations in more than like 35 places around the world. And we actually serve a lot more markets than we did when I started. So I had the opportunity to move throughout the company in a variety of roles. So, of course, with my engineering degree, I started out in the manufacturing arena. So had the opportunity to work on the manufacturing line, work in our quality group, testing our products. There's nothing more fun than testing a microphone by sticking it in a chamber where it gets heated up to you know, several hundred degrees you know, getting rained on and and seeing if it works after that. And it has to work pretty precisely after that. We're pretty hard on our products. So that was sort of my learning ground when I started with the company. Um, I wanted to get into management and I eventually made it onto the executive staff at a pretty early age. It was 1997 when I was vice president of quality. And then from there, I took over um, all of manufacturing in the 2000s. And in the mid-2000s, I actually went into sales and marketing, completely different part of the company. You know, I had been primarily involved with engineering and manufacturing. So getting that exposure to how our products get to market, um, understanding all of our channel partners, our retail partners, I did that for 10 years.
0: So you ultimately did get an engineering degree. How many women engineers were in your class at that time?
1: Well, I was a mechanical engineer, and I will say for whatever reason, uh, mechanical engineering is one of the least represented when it comes to the female contingent. There was a couple hundred mechanical engineers graduating in my graduating class in 89. Three of us were women, actually, so it was particularly low that year. But I have a stat for even present day, of all the practicing engineers, mechanical engineers out there in the United States, only around seven. to 10% of MEs, Practicing MEs are women. So it's still a very underrepresented engineering discipline for a variety of reasons. And
0: you are a leader in the technology industry. I know there are not a lot of leaders. You have a lot of thoughts on that. I know that you're spending a lot of your time now encouraging not only just girls, but all underrepresented groups to get into STEM fields. That's a really big passion of yours. So I just want to spend some time talking about it. So let's get into it. What have you been doing?
1: So, you know, we have a couple of different initiatives around our corporate, resp- or I'm sorry, our corporate social responsibility program. To me, our diversity and inclusion efforts marry up with corporate social responsibility. So there's organizations that we work with that do just what you were saying. You know, take kids that normally wouldn't be thinking about a career either in STEM fields or maybe even music and the arts and introduces them to something that they probably wouldn't normally otherwise see. Um, one example uh, is a group that we work with out in California called the Women's Audio Mission, (WAM). You know, if you think about um, the sound engineers that you see when times get back to normal and we're all back into, you know, concerts and uh, theaters again. You see a sound engineer, it's going to be likely a man because only 3 to 5% of audio engineers are women. So this group out in California, WAM, they actually sponsor about 2,000 women and girls going through their programs every year. It's the only sound studio in the United States that was designed and built by women and promotes education Um introducing women to the field of audio, and how it's not quite as, you know, mysterious as maybe, you know, people think it is. So that's, that's one example. And then around in the Chicago area, we work also with a lot of youth organizations, we try to aim our corporate giving at at groups that, again, help kids get introduced into fields they might not normally otherwise. We do some work, for example, with the Chicago Children's Choir. Um, that's been a really fun group to work with. Um, we have some of our engineers that work with the Lindblom um, High School in the city. They have an annual robotics competition so some of our engineers um, donate their time and we donate some funding so that you know the kids can actually make their prototype robots and go to these competitions so that kind of involvement and that kind of like direction of where we're aiming our corporate giving is is how we can actually move that needle because when it comes to our diversity and inclusion efforts we're competing with all these other companies for the same talent, and everybody wants to diversify their talent pool. Um, so you really have to start planting seeds now that will bear fruit, albeit 5, 10 years down the road, but you're actually growing the pool of people that you'll have you know, somewhere in the future. So you have to look at it from both of those angles, I think.
0: Well, and there's so much work being done with inner city youth, helping them see careers beyond entertainment. Um, right or sports and what's so cool about Shure is that they can be in entertainment they can do these things but you know with an engineering degree or a focus on the business of it because you work with really mm-hmm. cool musicians and venues and I mean the kinds of things that they can be engaged with I remember being at your offices and just the artifacts that you have are yeah. super super cool just like these these musical legends with their Shure equipment you know at Mega um, concerts,
1: walking around and you know seeing different performances that our products have captured through the world, or famous leaders giving famous speeches, right? And there were our products. And you know, an interesting fact is right now, you know, you look at the products that we are selling, definitely still aiming at the music market, but more of our products are used for spoken word and listening to spoken words than they are for for music at this point because we have diversified so much, but. It's it is fun to introduce kids to that whole world of how to get, you know, people to hear their hear their voices, get their voices heard and demystify, debunk some of the myths they may have around fields of engineering or acoustics. It's fun to, you know, go out to some of the schools, we've had some of our engineers do some experiments for kids to see, you know, what is acoustics about, what do microphones do? And it gets them really interested. It doesn't sound as boring as saying, "Okay, here's an engineering field."
0: Right. Well, and you know, I'm kind of geeking out because now I have this incredible Shure microphone and headset on. And I've never heard sound like this. And I've been dealing with, you know, the spoken word for a long time. And we do events. And of course we have sure microphones at all our events. But I just haven't been in this kind of a setup and it's incredible. You know, you started out at Shure, you've really dug in. Did you ever think of switching companies? Was there a turning point? Uh, Was there a point at which you really made that conscious decision to stay? Mm -hmm. You
1: know, when I was very early in my career, of course, I was always looking for what the next opportunity might be. And I just described to you, you know, the fact that the company has transformed itself, you know, so many times in the 32 years I've been there. I like to say I've actually had you know 10 to 15 different jobs at about eight different companies just because of growing into new markets growing into new locations so you know there were certainly times early on where i was getting that itch and wanting something new and then something would pop up right here at the company and i would think well i really like the products i really like the people is the grass really going to be greener on the other side so i would stay and then you know when i eventually decided maybe the sticking point was I knew I wanted to get into management and, you know, the company supported me in getting my master's degree and I was able to get, you know, promoted after that. And so starting to move into management, which is something I knew from the get go, I wanted to do. And I had the opportunity to do it at the company that I knew pretty well, knew the people pretty well. So at that point, you know, and that was pretty shortly after that, that I got onto the executive staff. I was, that was my sticking point. I would say the turning point when I got my master's
0: degree. So did you have a mentor along the way, or is there someone that played an influential role in that journey?
1: I did. You know, I was getting to the point where I knew I wanted to get into management, and I had a little bit of a disappointment at one juncture. Um, there was a job that was opening up in the quality group where I was at the time, and you know, there was a lot of hallway chatter, you know, oh Chris, you're going to get that job. That's, that's made for you. I didn't actually get the job. And, you know, I kind of thought about that. I stewed for a little bit. So I finally went to, um, you know, one of the leaders in that division and asked him, you know, like, why didn't I get it? And um, he was pretty blunt and said, well, you know, we thought you were kind of going up a technical ladder. No, you, you never said you wanted to get into management. And that was like a light bulb moment for me, realizing that people aren't just gonna notice you when you put your head down and work really hard, that you do have to advocate for yourself and kind of make your career path known. You have to share information as much as, you know, work hard. So he became a mentor for me. And I started looking at programs that combined both engineering skills as well as management, because I didn't want to do a straight MBA. We looked at a couple of programs at IIT and other schools. I eventually, at his guidance, actually investigated Northwestern, which was Kind of in the back seat of where I was working at that point, the company was headquartered in Evanston, so I signed up for the management of engineering. Uh, I'm sorry, masters of engineering management degree there that combines those two worlds that I was looking for, and was able to complete the degree and learned my lesson about you know not being too timid about expressing career goals and. Um, you know, kind of shaping where I wanted to go with, with my job.
0: And I think that's a lesson for aspiring women, but everyone really, I think, I mean, that's just good relationship advice too, right? People can't read your mind. And I think a lot of times we want, we want people to, to be the ones that are, are reaching out to us and being your own advocate and communicating, you know, what's important to you. I think it's, it's tricky for people early on in their career. They assume that, you know, the, the company will tell them.
1: Exactly. Exactly. But you have to make your intentions known too. Big lesson learned for me back then.
0: Yeah. See, so I could have asked you the question about your first job and the lesson that you learned that you still carry with you today because <laughs> you had one. Um, so if you weren't the CEO of this amazing professional audio company that you were born to be the CEO of, you know, even at <laughs> a young age, um, what do you think you do? You know, I honestly think I probably would
1: be in a similar situation at a similar company. When I um, was interviewing for companies leaving school, sure was actually one of three offers I had, and the other two companies were also manufacturers. You know, when I was taking my electives in school, as well as some of the summer jobs I had, a lot of mechanical engineers will tend to gravitate a little bit more over toward design and development. And I definitely liked the factory floor, being involved with making things, um, you know, the more tangible sort of part of, of mechanical engineering. And I definitely, I think, would still be, to this day, working for some manufacturing company somewhere. Um, that's just kind of in my blood. That's what, that's what gets me going. Oh
0: my gosh. Are you drinking Mountain Dew?
1: Yes. <laughs> I love
0: Mountain Dew.
1: It's, I've been doing it ever since I was in college, and I haven't been able to stop. I don't drink coffee. I drink Mountain Dew.
0: I love that. I think that's fantastic. Mountain Dew is so good. Very good. Um, so you became CEO what year? 2016. 2016. So you've been in it five years. Mm-hmm. What was the most surprising things to you about the CEO role? I mean, you had visibility into mm-hmm. it. You've been at the company a long yep. time. You were on the executive Correct. team for a while. But was there anything that once you got the role just was was surprising or different than what you expected?
1: You know i i think i had a similar experience making that transition as i had with previous ones you know every time you take that next step up um knowing how to balance your time between really more of the forward thinking and thinking strategically about what needs to be done in that role or now as ceo what needs to be done as a company and what direction are we going it's very very easy all of us get sucked into day-to-day details and emergencies and sometimes just really being able to extract yourself from that and and delegate. You know, as somebody who has been raised through the company, because you know all the details, you can easily get involved in things that that take a lot of time and are firefighting, quite frankly. So I had to learn how to manage my calendar a little bit better to really be focusing on the bigger things and not get sucked into too many details, which, again, it's it's kind of easy to do. So, um, you know, I try to make sure that when I get the, our executive staff together, our time is balanced much more heavily on the strategic thinking side of things. And that if we're getting into a phase where we're kind of getting back into details again, bringing us back up again. So I think that balance is hard for any CEO. And that balance is hard, you know, when you're making an advancement to a new, any new level in a company, I think.
0: Well, yeah. And particularly someone who actually could make the product, you know, and knows how to, yeah. you actually I, can get,
1: yeah. I know,
0: <laughs> I mean, you can get into a level of detail that not all CEOs can, mm-hmm. you know, with their businesses Absolutely. and products. So I could see, um, even just, you know, wanting to get your hands in it because you actually can. Um, so since this is the executives club of Chicago, we do like to talk about Chicago. Sure has been in the Chicagoland area since 1925. And so let's talk about that a little bit because you have been there through all the iterations. You're now a large, you know, global company. I always love these companies and sure is one of them where I tell people it's the biggest company that you may not have ever heard of, but then once you've heard of them, you see them everywhere, right? Like now anyone listening to this podcast who wasn't already aware, anytime you're in a professional venue and there is audio equipment. 99% chance it's going to be sure audio equipment. Why have you stayed in Chicago? You know, what does the Chicago area have to offer as you've gotten this huge global footprint? You know, is there a benefit to having the ties to Chicago?
1: There is, you know, our company founders, Mr. Schur and Mrs. Schur, they were diehard Chicagoans, you know. Mr. Schur was born and raised here. Mrs. Schur came from Iowa, but, you know, she knew every street of Chicago like the back of her hand. And, you know, they were very involved and active in the Chicago community. I think that's part of um, some of the philanthropic efforts that I was just describing. That's a legacy that the two of them left behind. They were always involved with the city and it was near and dear to them. From a talent perspective, you know, we've always been able to draw on, you know, nearby and faraway schools for that matter. But, you know, finding the right kind of talent has never been an issue. And I think, you know, even before the pandemic, we were looking at, I think, like every company, how to make work more flexible for people and looking at more like remote assignments. And I think the pandemic has just accelerated The fact that a company in Chicago actually can, you know, cast the net a little bit wider in terms of where it's recruiting people. And, you know, the Chicago location has never been a detractor, but now I think we even have greater flexibility in terms of being able to have, you know, people from different parts of the world for different jobs, which I think, you know, two years ago, maybe for certain levels in the company, we would have been a little bit more closed minded about, well, can that person really do the job remote? But I think you know, a lot of that, a lot of that thinking is really shifting. It was before the pandemic, but now it just had accelerant put on it. But again, you know, just had, there's never been an issue at all with finding, with finding talent for the jobs ever.
0: Um, any benefit to Chicago, anything that having Chicago as your headquarter location enables you to do that maybe you couldn't do in a New York or LA or something?
1: Well, you know, we do a lion's share of our distribution out of um, the Chicagoland area for um, for the United States and the Americas for that matter. So we have a, a distribution center in Wheeling, fantastic location to be able to, I mean, I think if we were going to look anywhere in the States and figure out where's the right distribution point, we'd probably land somewhere right in the middle of the country where we are. So there is advantage from a distribution standpoint, logistics standpoint. And, you know, again, I think there's something about maybe I'm biased because I was born and raised in the Midwest, but something about Midwest sensibilities and, you know, our brand is known for being very approachable. We're known as being answer people. We're known as being, we have a reputation for being more friendly, I guess, maybe compared to others in industry. So I think there is a little bit of that, you know, Midwest sensibility that comes out in terms of, you know, some of our messaging and and how we speak to end users and, and how we're reliable, not just, you know, in terms of our product technology, but we're reliable in being able to get access, being able to get somebody on the phone to speak with and things like that. You know, the service side to me is just as important as the product side.
0: Yeah. Right. Right. It's like, you want people that are uh, experts, but you don't want them to be snobs. Right. (laughs) So you're looking for like extreme technical expertise, but super friendly and down to earth. Which, yeah,
1: that's our authenticity. That's how we come through because actually that's who we are. So yeah. that that works well for us.
0: I know you could tell. I mean, just I've interacted with a lot of people at the company and everyone is like that. So you're in how many countries now? Well,
1: we sell into roughly, I'll give you a round number. We sell into about 160 countries around the world. Our locations are dispersed across about 35 different locations. Now that could be Anything from a, a factory where we have 500 people to, you know, we have an office in Dubai that has about 16, you know, go to market kind of people. So quite a, yeah, a quite so a variation much of office sizes. Um,
0: is there an international market or mm-hmm. markets that was really challenging to break into for any reason?
1: Yeah. Um, Sure. You know, we we have our lion's share of market share definitely in more of the Western parts of the world. So we have a dominating market share in the U.S., parts of Western Europe. Um, You know, we have paid a lot of attention over the last two decades into breaking into certain markets in Asia. Um, China and Japan have been markets of focus. And I'm really happy to say that, especially in Japan, we've been moving the needle on market share over about the last five years you know, Japan is a country that plays well for our product solutions because of the very high quality standards that the Japanese, you know, end user has. And there's a lot of firmly entrenched local Japanese brands. So it's hard for, you know, someone like us to come in and, and break into that market. There's a long period of trust building, relationship building. And, you know, we've had people in the market there for quite some time. And like I said, it you have to be a patient person. You're not going to expect that just doing your normal marketing, like you do in other parts of the world, is going to get you from point A to point B in a year. You've got to. It's a multi-year plan where you're building, like I said, those relationships and building that trust in the product. So that's been an area of focus for us, and of course, you know, the Chinese market as well over the last decade. So, and that's you know, an enormous market and has the same sort of um, challenges, as I just described. It's relationships and products alike.
0: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor, Sure. Audio equipment for the Executives Exchange podcast is provided by Shore Incorporated. When your team is depending on you for information and motivation, you can't afford to sound anything less than clear and confident. For nearly 100 years, performers and world leaders have depended on Shore microphones. Whether you're in front of a camera or behind a podium, sure lets you sound extraordinary. Welcome back. Okay, so, you know, we have to talk about COVID. I wish we didn't have to talk about COVID because everyone's so sick about talking about COVID, but this is a business (laughs) podcast and COVID has affected businesses in such dramatic ways. So let's talk about sure. You know, how has it impacted your business, biggest challenges, biggest gifts of it?
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's interesting. I have said to a couple of people that um, COVID, had, had COVID happened to us maybe 15 to 20 years prior, I think we would have been in a truly existential crisis because the segments of the market that we serve around entertainment, you think about um, touring, concerts, theater venues, which are all closed, and most of them are, are going to be, be remaining closed for like probably till the end of this calendar year. Um, you know, 20 years ago, that was 80% of our business. And right now that business is down by about 60 to 80%, depending on which product line you're talking about. So we would have been pretty devastated by that. Fortunately, um, in the last 15 to 20 years, we've been expanding into different markets. So One big key area of focus for us is in AV conferencing. So we sell to a lot of corporate education and government clients for business communications, right, video conferencing and so on. So that's been a growing business for us, as well as more of the consumer play. So microphones used for content creation, like the microphone you're using today, Um, that a a cousin product to that actually happens to be the number one microphone used by gamers. SM7B is the model number there. And then um, earphones and headphones like you're also wearing. So we have diversified a lot in the last 15 to 20 years. And so even though a big segment of our business took a nosedive by 60 to 80 percent, we've been able to carry through by making up the business in other parts. You know, certainly the podcasting microphones and w- as work from home tools really picked up in 2020. So it just shows the the benefits, of course, of having a diversified portfolio, not having too many eggs in one basket. And I guess if COVID could have come at an at a okay time, this would have been it for us because of that diversification.
0: Any gift or silver lining of COVID for you, either the business or you personally?
1: I think for the business, I would, I would touch on what I hinted at a little bit earlier. Um, You know, we're a company that is growing and we're expanding into new technologies. And sometimes, you know, we have felt a little bit like, well, is our location in Chicago a, a detractor actually for some people that we want to attract from the coasts or even other parts of the world. And I think, you know, 2020 threw everybody into a tizzy, but look at how we responded from an IT perspective. I think a lot of companies discovered we have pretty strong IT backbones, and we can do a lot more work virtually than maybe we thought we could in the past. So now I think the, the silver lining, if you want to think of it, is more flexibility in what our workforce looks like, where we can recruit from, and... Um, just moving to a more a more virtual world, I think there was a real accelerant on that, and um, the resiliency of people really shown through in 2020 as well. I think when you look at our company, I think when you look at a lot of companies, the way people scrambled to get up and running as as fast as we did, from the IT network all the way to how do we get back into production again, how do we keep everything safe for people that are still working? You know, we have people working in our factories, we have people working in Um, the distribution centers. And now there's space to, you know, we didn't have to worry about space considerations before. We didn't have to worry about a lot of things, but people scrambled and got it done really fast. I think there was a lot of resilience demonstrated during 2020. Yeah. So that was really nice to see.
0: I know. And we've talked to a couple of um, tech CEOs and they've mentioned the same thing that, you know, Chicago's always been a great place to start a company, but for some of the tech companies, as they've tried to scale the, the, the leadership team that's going to actually scale you and grow you is different than the startup team. And that's been the talent that's been tough. Mm-hmm. Um, and this ability now to not have to recruit someone to move to Chicago, but, you know, you can have a, a CTO, CFO, you know, people living in other places and recruit whoever you want. I mean, it's just broken so much open. Absolutely. It's really incredible. Sure has generously signed on to be the sponsor of our new podcast series. Thank you so much. If you just want to share, you know, why was this important for sure? Because you've been sponsoring our audio for a while now and we do a lot of events and all of that. But when we came to you about this podcast, I know that you were really excited and felt like it was a great fit. So we can just talk about that a little bit.
1: Well, and I think you think about our products, I mentioned earlier that more of our products get used for spoken word than even for for music these days. So so spoken word to me means sharing stories. It means education. Um, You know, we spent a good deal of time during the pandemic connecting with end users just by promoting more of the educational tools that we have. And I think what you're trying to get done with this podcasting series here is sharing stories about leadership and what better you know venue for our products to shine in than as these stories are being told so it just made a whole lot of sense to to get involved with this
0: thank you very much we really appreciate it i know now that you say that it's interesting i mean even things that we traditionally think of as music like spotify is getting so heavy into spoken word content right mm-hmm. i mean it's really
1: absolutely yeah
0: um, yeah. How much of that do you feel is pandemic driven? I mean, have we just gotten into that so much because of the pandemic or was this already happening? Like, I
1: think these were, I think these were trends that were going to happen, but they probably would have happened in five to 10 years. The pandemic made that more like one to three years now. It just kind of compressed and accelerated so many trends that were already underway, you know, in so many different areas when you think about it.
0: Yeah. Well um and for those listening as you know this podcast is going to be a combination of you know new content like this our interviews but we also do all these programs you know with CEOs and that's what we had realized when we this idea was pre-pandemic as well um this was before the pandemic that we had this idea that we generate so much content and you know you kind of have to go to our YouTube channel and and maybe watch the whole hour long interview, which everyone doesn't necessarily want to do. And so we're also going to be editing down some of those great conversations and also including them in this playlist, because there's just so many amazing conversations we have. And, you know, it's kind of like, if you missed it, you missed it. And we don't want that to be the case. We want these things to be able to live on a little bit more. So um, what's something that not everyone knows about you? Okay,
1: um, I actually have one that I haven't told you before. So, you know, I not only was I making that selection when I went to college between music and engineering, but I also thought maybe I would become a pilot or an astronaut. So, my first year of college, I actually joined the Air Force ROTC. So, um, I, I actually had an engineering scholarship with U.S. Air Force. You know, my first year because of that. So. I just had this notion that I wanted to be a pilot. I wanted to fly around and maybe become an astronaut someday. Um, long story short, you know, I ended up enjoying my engineering classes, you know, and after that first year of being an ROTC, I decided I wasn't going to stay in it any longer and there was no ab- obligation to stay. But, you know, I did all the, all the ROTC things my first year of college. So I had to wear my uniform on campus every Thursday. I had to get up for early morning physical training on Friday mornings and, um, yeah, ended up deciding I wasn't going to stay in the military. I wanted to, you know, stay a civilian and become an engineer and, you know, go along that path. But for a moment there, I thought I was going to go in that direction.
0: Was it the ROTC training that turned you off? Like you didn't want to have that lifestyle?
1: It wasn't horrible, actually. It wasn't bad getting up early on a Friday morning and trying to keep in shape. But you know, it was just I just, you know, yeah. I a lot of things were happening in my life at that point. I had met my now husband too, by the way. So. Um, decided maybe a life in the military traveling around the world wasn't mm-hmm. going to be as, you know, as settling as maybe just, you know, having a normal engineering job.
0: <laughs> yeah. 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 I didn't know if it was the extremeness of it because I had kind of a similar situation where I thought I wanted to be a clinical psychologist and I was working inpatient in a mental health hospital. And of course, that's the most extreme cases. And I got burnt out kind of quick and thought this wasn't for me, but I remember People counseling me. No, no, like what dealing in an inpatient situation is not what your life would necessarily be like. But I already had kind of moved on in my mind and got into sociology instead. But sometimes we can have these experiences of something that kind of when we're young and we don't know better, we kind of think, oh no, that's going to be the life. I don't necessarily want all that. <laughs> so You've done so much in your career and in your personal life. So as you look back at the totality of your career, what are you most proud of?
1: You know, I think no matter if I was over on the manufacturing side of the company or then moving into sales and marketing, um, being part of a company that has a growth strategy and can successfully employ a lot of really talented people around the world, um, you know, I, because I've been with the company for so long, I know so many people's stories. I know their families. I know what their kids are doing. And it's just really gratifying to know that you can provide an opportunity for people at a company that has a growth plan. And, you know, one that has, you know, some fundamental good core values that, you know, people like signing up for. And uh, just to know that you're, you're making that difference in people's lives. That gives me huge satisfaction.
0: I know. I can imagine. I mean, you've seen people grow up there just like you did. You've met their kids, maybe now their grandkids, right? I mean, just getting to know these people. I mean, it is such a, it does feel like a family, the company, And even as you're, yeah. I don't even know how many employees you're at now, but you still have that, you know, family feel to it, which is so special that you haven't, you know, lost that as it's become, you know, large and Yeah. And, and you
1: know, it. Somehow we've been really successful in transferring that sort of family feel, if you want to call it that, to other parts of the world. You know, I've often said that it doesn't matter if I'm visiting one of our offices, you know, the factory in China or the sales office in Shanghai. There is something about the sure spirit that we've been able to, um, you know, somehow Uh, import into other parts of the world, I guess. So there is a real common passion that people have for the brand, for the products. And, you know, it feels good to know that that has been able to transfer actually.
0: So when you're faced with a tough situation, you aren't sure what to do. How do you approach it? What do you do personally? Who do you talk to? How do you lean into those situations?
1: So, you know, being the engineer that I am, there's a lot of data collection. I do like to have a lot of data at hand and, you know, try to gather as much as I can. The trick is knowing when to stop collecting data and when it's time to make a decision (laughs) because you're never going to have that complete set of data that tells you the exact answer in black and white. So you have to, the trick is knowing when is the point when you've collected enough data, you've heard enough opinions from people, and it's time to it's time to take a decision and move forward. So I do it I do, do the data collection. I do hear opinions from all angles. I certainly am a believer in there's more than one side to every story. I always like to hear, you know, everybody's opinion on things. And then then you have to figure out to go forward. Hopefully that decision, you know, takes you in the right direction. And if it doesn't, then you readjust and you know, you figure out what the next step is. But yeah. the trick is not spending too much time and getting, you know, data paralysis, you know, analysis paralysis.
0: I know. And um, so, you know, I went to grad school and got a PhD in sociology and I went through pretty quick and there were plenty of fellow graduate students who had that kind of paralysis. I mean, he just mm-hmm. stayed in grad school for eight, nine, 10 years because they had to kind of write this perfect dissertation and needed all the data. And I remember someone said to me, the best dissertation is a done dissertation. And that really <laughs> stuck with me. Like the best work is like a, a well-completed work, you know, and it can be tough to remember that sometimes. Um, that's really good advice. So when are you at your best? I am definitely
1: an early morning person. So, you know, whether I'm me too. like today working from home, Or like last week, um, I was doing a whole series of town hall meetings on Thursday. I got to the office at like 6.15, even though I I didn't have to be there quite that early. But I normally, if I go in, I'm there by about seven o'clock. I just feel like bright and early in the morning and before there's like a lot of interruptions to the day.
0: I know. Don't you just love that quiet? I mean, it just feels like this gift, right? That you are like ahead of everyone. I mean, I feel like I get more done in those two hours than in like the rest of my whole workday.
1: Yes. And even, you know, sometimes I'll try to do some cramming at, you know, later at night and I get to the point where I realize if I do this in the morning, I'm going to get it done in a 10th, the amount of time of what I'm trying to do right now. So the 10 o'clock cramming sessions for me don't work too terribly well. I'm better off leaving it to the morning.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Right. And just getting up early and doing Mm it. Um, when you're at your worst,
1: I think I just described it. I, um, If I've if I've exhausted myself a little bit too much during the day and I'm trying to get something done too late at night, it's not productive. It just isn't productive. Yeah. I'm much more of that morning person, so better off doing the the binge watching television at night and then thinking about the important stuff during the morning.
0: I know I'm the same way, and my husband's the exact opposite. He's a graphic designer, and I don't know if this just goes along with like creative minds, but his ideal work day would be like two in the afternoon till ten o'clock at night like that if he had to create his ideal when he yeah. feels like most productive and i'd like to be done by 2 like that's to me like yeah. the worst possible work day
1: you should have been in manufacturing margaret <laughs> <laughs> i know
0: but it worked out really well you know raising young kids and stuff it just like our the shift work with the kids came really easy because i naturally you know was wanted to do the early stuff and he naturally wanted to do the late stuff so it worked out pretty well um, what are the kinds of things that keep you up at night
1: that's really easy I can tell you it's I I recently heard a quote from somebody say only the paranoid survive and so of course what keeps me up at night is thinking about what could what could come in sideways and hit us and it's Mm -hmm. always from a technology standpoint that I'm thinking of because I see how our technology has rapidly evolved especially over the last decade um I'm fond of telling people that we now hire more software engineers than any other kind of engineer. But I've been saying that for five years now. So it's it's really true in spades. And so many more things can be done um, through customization of, of software. And, you know, our products to, are going to get to the point where they can be serviced. They can be upgraded, you know, from software and, and be done. Oh, in interesting. So, you know, it's thinking about what that continuum looks like and how fast it's going to change and how fast end users want it to change. And I think, you know, the people that could come in and hit us sideways aren't the traditional competitors that we do spend a lot of time thinking about. It's going to be it's going to be a smaller startups thinking about yeah. the true technology angle. So we like to ask ourselves the question, you know, if you were going to come in today and try to unseat Sure, what would you do? you know, as a startup. And we have to think like that startup to, you know, we have to kind of like disrupt ourselves, right? So constantly thinking about that technology, how, how, you know, different ages of users are going to want different things from our products, you know, what is the next generation going to want? What are they going to be used to from a technology standpoint? That is just that is what churns in, in my brain all the time.
0: Right. And even more reason then to have this diverse talent, you know, from other geographic locations, software engineers now that you can maybe be pulling in from perhaps Silicon Valley that maybe pre-pandemic you wouldn't have necessarily strongly recruited or you needed a a different type of incentive package for them and stuff
1: and um, having
0: them come in. So we have more
1: flexibility with that now. Yeah.
0: I know because these I mean, I was in an industry that got pretty disruptive before and like it's it's never the known players, right? It's not the people that you're thinking of as your traditional competitive set. I mean, it usually is someone coming out um, and just approaching it in a whole new way. Well, and you know,
1: when I started with the company, um, the company was refocusing itself back on microphones in the 1980s because what had been Shure's heyday in the 60s and 70s, it was making phonograph needles for record players.
0: you know
1: those things were going out of the factory like popcorn and then the cd players came onto the market and i think in like literally overnight within nine to 12 months the company's revenue just plummeted and there was a lot of rebuilding that went on during the 80s so i reflect on on that era of the company that i was i joined it when it was in recovery from from that situation and, mm-hmm. you know, how to think about what could possibly be as disruptive as that was many decades ago. It, like I said, only
0: the paranoids survive. <laughs> right. Well, as a music person, so I know, I would say I really enjoy and love music, but I would not consider myself, you know, a, a super music nerd. Um, but the ones I know, I mean, they all lament the transition to like CD that the that, that music quality has mm-hmm. degraded since that time. Yeah. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that.
1: Well, I'm I'm a little bit on both sides. I mean, we definitely have the purists at our company. We're not actually in that business anymore because as much as people do like to, it seems like people are like around the holidays all want to get back into buying record players again, and there's a little <laughs> bit of interest. And then it just really quickly wanes because you know simply. The access and the capabilities of digital is just—it's—it's it's what is accessible to people, and it what makes you know music listening that much easier. So, um, I'm a purist on one hand, but I'm also you know I embrace new technologies, and I think things are never going to really go back to the way they were in the 60s and 70s. We've advanced way too far at this point.
0: <laughs> right. So what are one or two things that you see on the horizon that you're most intrigued by, most fascinated by, following, interested in? Um, You know, right now we have
1: an effort going on at the company. We're calling it digital transformation. I think that's probably a term that a lot of other companies are using and adopting and just really trying to get a handle on all of the information that we have and how to make it, um, available to everybody that needs to use it. You know, there's pockets of information all over the place. And so we're really working hard on tying that all together. And I think it's just absolutely fascinating when you look at any company, including ours, who's accumulated all of these technology Mm -hmm. tools over the years, and yet they're still fairly um, unconnected, not talking to each other. So you know, data I think is just a huge and interesting topic right now, and leveraging data, and not just what we hold, you know, ourselves internally, but also, you know, what our customers have, and and how to connect with them as well. So, I think the whole data science field is very interesting right now, and like I said, we're, you know, in the throes of a project trying to figure out how we take some of our first steps to more. Automation, having a better connection with end users being you know everything should will be pretty smart looking forward, right We'll know when a microphone needs to be upgraded. We'll know when you know somebody needs something different with their software, but you know getting from point A here to point B I think is pretty exciting. There's so many interesting advancements happening right now,
0: yeah, so much promise yes, yep yeah back when you were coming up, you clearly had a lot of support. Around all sorts of STEM areas, right? And it seems like we're still fighting that battle with women. And so, I'm just curious, what do you think it was in your upbringing, your environment, your family that was, you know, fostering this that it just seemed like an easy decision for you? Like, of course, you're going to be an engineer, and of course, you were going to go work for a technology company, and you know, and 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 you were also a musician, and but it, it seemed like. And and there were only three women in your engineering class, but, you know, you just kept pushing ahead. So what was it and what do we need to be thinking about now for, again, not just women, but all underrepresented groups who don't necessarily see that path for them?
1: I think debunking some of the myths and stereotypes that exist, you know, it was needed to be done back then. It still needs to be done today. Here's a great example. It was really I'll give full credit to my parents who encouraged me to pursue the engineering path because it just so happened that I was quite good in math and science. I've gone back and I've looked at, you know, data for some presentations I've done. When you look at scores of you know girls and boys, for example, on different sort of um, standardized tests, Math and science is just as strong as girls in those formative years, you know, middle school and high school, but yet they still don't gravitate towards those STEM careers because maybe they don't have that same person like I had in my parents giving me the nudge. The story is my high school counselor sat down with me and kind of looked at all my transcripts and you know, saw my scores in math and the automatic assumption, he told me I needed to go into accounting because of that. Engineering, okay. sciences were never even uttered, you know, in that room. And when I was having that career development discussion. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think people being able to open doors for, you know, girls and other underrepresented groups about what's available. You have a particular, you know, good sort of, you know, attitude towards, towards science and math and I'm sorry, aptitude. Um, you know, that should be recommended. Somebody has got to give that nudge because it's, you know, Otherwise, people will fall into the stereotypes. Well, I don't look like everybody else that's doing that job. I probably should go find something else. So there needs to be more mentors. There needs to be more advocacy. There needs to be more breaking down of the stereotypes, frankly. So fortunately, I listened to my mom and dad for once. (laughs) imagine that. I say that.
0: <laughs> but that's, you know, a big part of what you're doing now that you're able to have this impact now on an right. even bigger scale, you know, with the, the shore organization behind it, going into, you know, neighborhoods and, and trying to foster. Mm-hmm. Exactly. This. It's tough to, you know, if you tried to get at it one parent at a time or one school counselor at a time, that's a, that's a long road. So what would you go back and tell your 18 year old self if you could?
1: You know, I would probably tell myself a couple of things. Um, I would first tell myself not to be afraid to ask questions. Um, I would often find myself, you know, for example, if I was the only girl in my calculus class or whatever, if I wasn't understanding a concept, I kind of felt like, well, I better not ask a question because it'll appear like I'm the only one in the room that doesn't understand this. And of course, over the years, I came to understand that nobody else in the room was getting it either. Somebody had to finally ask the question of, you know, the teacher or the professor, what was going on? So I think I was hesitant to ask questions as an 18 year old and I didn't want to appear like dumb. Right. Um, And then I would also tell myself to to be be a strong advocate for myself because, you know, I told you the story about being passed over for a promotion and you know, thinking that just hard work was going to to show through and shine through when people would know that I should get promoted instead of telling people that I actually wanted to ad- advance and, and get into management. So don't be afraid to ask questions and make sure you are a strong advocate for yourself.
0: Chris, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for your leadership, your passion, your commitment to these social issues for everything that you do. Um, Thank you for serving on our board. Thank you for being a community leader and advocate for underrepresented groups in the STEM fields everywhere. So good to talk to you today.
1: And thank you, Margaret. You have been a wonderful, sure fan and advocate. So I thank you for, you know, being able to meet you a couple years ago and and getting more involved with everything that you're doing. You have taken this group through a, a pandemic and have reshaped a lot of the things you're doing. And I've been Watching it with a lot of admiration.
0: So I thank you for your time as well. Thank you. See, a shout out for stuffy business dinners. We met each other at a stuffy business dinner. So, you know, these things, you know, good things come. That's all for today's episode of the Executives Exchange, sponsored by Shure Incorporated. Thanks for listening. If you have Chicago speakers you think we should cover, please send us an email at media at org. The Executives Exchange is a production of the Executives Club of Chicago. Audio equipment for the Executives Club podcast is provided by Shure. Whether you're making a point or making history, Shure lets you sound extraordinary. It's written by me, Margaret Mueller, produced by Eva Pinar, Research and support from the staff of the Executives Club of Chicago. We appreciate you subscribing and reviewing the show from wherever you listen. Feel free to follow the club on Twitter at Exec Club and on LinkedIn. If you have more questions or are interested about becoming a member at the Executives Club of Chicago, check us out on the web at executivesclub.org.